So today I want to walk through uh, kind of what we walked through on Sunday morning. Was anybody in big church this past week? Yeah, a lot of y'all were. So I was in big church, and I get real excited about those days because that's the Lord's Supper Day. And growing up, I went to a church of about 100 and probably 110, 120 people maybe. And uh, I loved Lord's Supper Day because we didn't have those little individual containers. They passed around this big old antique plate. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, you wouldn't. Yeah. They passed around and they had all these crackers on there. And if I weren't sitting with my parents, if I was sitting by me and my friends, I was smuggling some crackers. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I know. I'm a, I'm a villain. Shh. I know this is my villain story. So that was it. I, I would get the, the big right here. Shh. They would pass around the other container that had all the juices in the cups. And I would, I'm not kidding. I would spend a good five seconds looking for the juice that had the, the cup that had the most juice in it, you know? I'm like, I'm getting my money's worth, you know? I'm going to need something to chase down my handful of crackers that I got. Lord's Supper Day was one of my favorite days because it was free crackers and juice in church and I was pumped about it, right? Shh, please, 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 quiet, quiet, quiet. I love Lord's Supper Day. I was pumped about it. But here's the reality. I did not really understand the Lord's Supper. All I knew is that we were going to have crackers and juice today, and it was something about Jesus on the cross. That's what I understood. And today, what I want to do, I want to explain to you guys where the Lord's Supper comes from and the meaning behind the Lord's Supper because the Lord, Jesus, has his last supper right before he goes to the cross, right before he is killed, right before he's buried, and right before he raised from the dead. This is the last supper. The meal that we look at for the Lord's Supper is based from that text right there. So, Jesus has just spent three years with his disciples. You know about the 12 disciples? Don't track me there. He spent three years with the disciples teaching them uh, leading them, ministering to them, but eventually gets to the last few days on this earth when Jesus is going to walk with his disciples. And what happens is he has a supper with them. And he's about to connect the Old Testament to the New Testament through this teaching of the last supper. And this happens in Luke chapter 22. So if you want to, you can open your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. I got a verse on the screen for you. I want to pull up for you guys real quick. It's Luke 22. There we go. Perfect. Yeah. Luke 22. We're going to look at what Jesus tells his disciples as he's getting ready for this last supper. Then came the day of unleavened bread. Unleavened bread. Does anybody know what unleavened bread is? Jonah, I feel like you got a good answer here. What is unleavened bread? That's right. Yeah, like a tortilla. Similar. Yeah, it's perfect. Great job. All right. Then came the day of the unleavened bread. Shh. Everybody's like, I know what leaven is. Okay. On which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Whoa, real quick. Okay. That's real Old Testament, real Old Testament. A Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Verse 8, let's keep going. So Jesus sent Peter and John. 
Remember those guys that he called? Remember the ones that he called out of the boat to follow him? Peter and John saying, go and prepare the what? Go and prepare the for us that we may eat it. So when Jesus is having the last supper, what he's doing is he's celebrating the Passover with the other Jews. And what I want you to know is this, is that Jesus celebrated the Passover. And the Lord's Supper was, the last supper here at the end of Jesus' life was a reflection, was a, was a fulfillment of the Passover that we see throughout all the Old Testament. And even the early church, when they became believers and they were following the Lord that were Jews beforehand, they probably still kept the Passover every year because there's a, the Passover wasn't just for the Old Testament. The Passover was a fulfillment of the Old Testament in the New Testament through Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at that today and how the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, is a reflection, if I back it up, to the Passover. But in order to look at the Passover, we got to define what the Passover feast is. So what is the Passover? If you're taking notes, you ought to write this down. What is the Passover? The Passover is a Jewish holiday that celebrates the biblical story of God delivering Israel from being enslaved in Egypt. When God spared their firstborn son, through the sacrificial lamb. You can keep that up there for a few minutes, please. Don't keep that up there. Someone wants to write down the can. The Passover was a holiday that was celebrated by the Jews every year. And it was to be celebrated in remembrance of what God did in Exodus. It was a remembrance of what God did in Exodus. And it was to proclaim to the people around them. They might be reminded and they might proclaim it to people about what God has done. So in order for us to understand, right here, guys, in order for us to understand the Last Supper, we got to back it up to the Passover. In order for us to understand the Passover, we got to back it up to the Exodus. And so that's where we're going. In order for us to understand the Last Supper, we got to go all the way back to the story of Exodus. Are y'all still writing this? I don't want to take it away for you for a second. You keep writing for a second, all right? For those of you who may be um, new to church or maybe new to the Old Testament, there was a, can I, can I borrow someone on the front row real quick? Somebody right here? Come on up, Trey. You were the first one volunteer. Come here. So God chose a man named Abraham, and he was going to make him his people. He was going to bless him. He was going to take care of him. And so through the years, Abraham would go and he became 100 years old and he had a son named Isaac. I need another person to come up here with me. Come on, one more. Someone in the front right here, come on. Someone who's easy access, come on real quick. Abraham had a son named Isaac. So now Abraham and his wife Sarai have a son named Isaac. They're going through. Isaac has another son whose name is, who's, who is it? Is there anyone here in the room named Jacob? Anybody? Come on, Jacob, get up here. Come on, yeah. Chop, chops, let's go. Come on. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they have their own kids. Well, then Jacob, Jacob has 12 kids, 12 sons. Time out, time out. All I'm going to ask is that this entire front row right here stands up. You ain't got to go anywhere. Just stand up for me, okay? Just simply stand up. Well, then these 12 sons have a ton of other sons, 
And next thing you know, the whole room stand up. Yes. The whole room. All right, you can have a seat. Thank you so much. Thank you for helping out. All right, go have a seat. There was about 75 people in Jacob's family at this point that, shh, right here, shh. There were about 75 people in Jacob's family when a famine hit the land of Canaan. And Israel, the entire nation of Israel, packs up their bags and they move to this land called Egypt. And they stayed in Egypt for 400 years. For 400 years, the nation of Israel is living in the parameters of Egypt. And that's where the story of Exodus picks up. So I've got three things for you real quick about Exodus. The first thing is this, God's promise. Three truths about Exodus. Number one is God's promise. Three truths about Exodus. You got God's promise. God makes a promise in Genesis. Uh, I want to give you the right reference real quick. I'm going to pull it up on the screen in just a second. Genesis 26, that's what it is. In Genesis 26, can I go here? I'm going to go to the next one. Three truths about Exodus. You have the first one's God's promise. Genesis 26, verse 4. God is talking to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to them. And he says, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven. What he's saying is, I'm, I'm going to give you a lot of families, a bunch of families. You have so many people running around your house, you can't even count them, all right? And I will give to your offspring, to your nation, to your families. I'm going to give to your offspring all of these lands. That's the land of Canaan. It was beautiful. It was fruitful. It was bountiful. It was amazing. And in your offspring, all nations of the earth shall be blessed. What an amazing promise. Does anyone know what this is talking about, this last sentence? And in your offspring, in your descendants, Israel, all the nations, all the world on the earth shall be blessed. What is that talking about? Jesus. It's talking about Jesus, right? One day, I'm going to bless the whole world through your lineage of people, through Israel Jr. and Israel Jr. Jr. and Israel the second and third and the fourth and fifth and keep going. Some point down the road, there's going to be someone who's going to bless the whole world and that person is going to be Jesus. So, but here's the promises we see to the people right now. I will multiply your people and I will give you this land. God makes a promise. I'm going to give you a fruitful nation and I'm going to give you some fruitful land. I'm going to do both of those things for you. That was God's promise. The second thing is this, God's people. So let's look at this. Does God fulfill his promise to his people? Like, is God a good God? Is he a faithful God? Does he do what he says? Or is he someone that just talks and talks and talks, but has no bark behind? Like, all bark, no bite. Like, is that him? Does he have some real faithfulness behind his words that he says? God's promise and God's people. Let's see what happens. Let's go to Exodus chapter 1. And this is a big passage, so please bear with me. I'm not going to try to read the whole thing like super fast, but I got to walk through it. This is in Exodus now. 400 years later, they're in Egypt, and guess what? They are, they've got some promises fulfilled, but they got some others that haven't been fulfilled from God. The first one is this. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Did God fulfill his first promise? Boom, all right, first door kicked down, let's go, right? The second one, did he give them the land? Let's see. 
Verse 8. Now there arose a new king in Egypt who did not know Joseph, who is one of Jacob's sons. Verse 9. Let's keep going. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Verse 10. Come, let us deal shrewdly or uh, like abusively or bitterly or harshly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So the king of Egypt's like, yo, we got to we gotta do something with these people of Israel. They're kind of like, they're too strong. They got a lot of folks. Let's put them under our thumb, right? So here we go. Verse 11. Therefore, they set taskmasters over Israel to afflict them with heavy burdens. And they built for Pharaoh store cities, Pethom and Ramses. If that's not how you say it, don't be mad at me, okay? Pharaoh puts them to hard labor. Israel is out there working as slaves for Pharaoh. Verse 13, let's keep going. Is it, can we keep going, right? Yeah, verse 13. Is that right? Yeah, verse 13. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. Final one, verse 14, last one. And made their lives bitter. Remember this word. What is this? Bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all the work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. I'm telling you guys, the people of Israel have seen God answer the first promise, man. They saw God multiply them, but man, they are hurting. They are under bitter, harsh labor and they are struggling. If you keep reading, they're crying out to God saying, where are you, God? Can you not rescue us? Can you not redeem us? We're hurting. We're in shambles. This is where Israel's at. And God, being faithful to his promise, does something about it. So we see God's promise, we see God's people, but then finally we see God's power, okay? We see God's power. And this is what happens in the midst of him making a promise to his people, in the midst of God's people struggling, being under slavery and bondage and bitter, harsh slavery, like in that spot, like it is so difficult. God's power intervenes and he sends 10 plagues onto the nation of Egypt. Y'all heard about the 10 plagues, right? Yeah? Can anybody name them all? Well, you got it. Bravo. Yeah, someone said locust boils. Yeah. I know, I know, I know. Shh. Dude, you guys are wild, man. First one is this. God turns the waters of Egypt into blood. The second one, God brings in a whole... Um, uh, not a herd, but a, what do you call it, you know? A fleet of frogs brings in a bunch of gnats. They go away. Brings in the flies. They go away. He kills all the livestock. That goes away. He brings in boils. That goes away. He brings in hail and fire onto the land. That goes away. He brings in the locusts. That goes away. He brings in darkness, and then that goes away. And I tell you all that because here's the deal. He goes through these nine plagues on the land, and people are going through it, man. But you know who's being protected in the middle of it? Israel is. But finally, God's about to unleash a plague on everybody. Everyone is about to be affected. And shh, please, please. He is going to unleash a plague on them 
where he's going to come through and he is going to cast down judgment on every family by murdering the, or taking out, killing the firstborn son of every family. Listen, this is a nation that he has been begging them to let my people go. He's been sending plagues to tell them, I'm a real God, I'm the one true God, and you ought to obey and listen to me. And they keep hardening their hearts rebelling. And finally he says, I'm gonna pour out my wrath, my judgment on you because you have rebelled against me. And he's gonna, he's gonna take away their firstborn son if they would not do one thing. He says, if you will take a lamb, a blameless, spotless, firstborn male lamb, if you would take that lamb, slaughter it, take the hyssop branch, wipe it in the blood of the lamb, and put it over the doorpost of your home. Literally, he would take a branch, take the blood of the lamb, take it, and they would put it over the doorpost of their home, all around it. And he said, in the middle of the night, when the when the Lord would come through, he would slaughter every, every firstborn son of every family of the home. But if he saw the doorposts covered by the blood of the lamb, his judgment would not be on the person, but it had already been done on the lamb that was killed. What he's saying is the lamb took the place for your family. And he says, if you'll put faith in slaughtering the lamb, I will spare you. And that's exactly what they did that night. And the, the Lord went through and tons, I mean, the whole Egyptian population, one person was killed in every household that did not put the lamb on the door. The lamb's blood on the door. Remember, the lamb's blood on the wooden doorpost. Y'all seeing this? The lamb's blood on the wooden doorpost over their home. And what happens is Egypt is done with it because Israel was spared from this because they followed God's commands, but Egypt was not. They were slaughtered throughout the night because of their rebellion against God. And because of that, Egypt sends them out in the middle of the night and they leave Egypt to go to the land of Canaan where God would bless them and make them a great, great nation. You can read about that the rest of the Old Testament. But what happens is God commands Israel to keep this holiday every year to never forget about what God did in Exodus to redeem them out of the bondage and slavery in Egypt to bring them into the beautiful, bountiful, blessing land of Canaan. So I tell you that because here's the deal. If I want to look at the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, this is rooted, this is, this is a picture of the Passover feast that's happening every year for the Jewish population. But if I want to know what the Passover is, like I look back on what this is about. This is all about the Exodus. And I tell you that because here's the deal. Exodus is a picture of what's to come with Jesus one day at the Calvary. At the Calvary cross where Jesus bled and died. It's a picture. Let me show it to you. If I'm going to do this, I've got to walk you through the Passover. So what I have for you guys today, I've got a Passover feast the best I can with my very non-Jewish background, the best I can for you guys. I have the Passover feast for y'all here, okay? Now, most of the time, shh, real quick, when you think about a Passover feast, 
there's all kind of elements to it. You've got bread and you've got, uh, now I know what you're thinking. This is leavened bread, right? Some of y'all are already like, this guy ain't Jewish at all, man. I know I'm not, okay? But here's, I wanna walk through some of these items here. So the first one I walk through at the table, one of the things that are at the table that you would find is parsley. We got that one up here for us? You've got the parsley and salt water. So what they would take, they would take the veggies, the parsley and the salt water, and they would take this and they would dip it in a bowl of salt water. And you're like, that is a weird tradition in the Jewish culture. There actually isn't because I didn't want to spill it. I'm so sorry. Yeah, thank you, Jonah. Yeah, for exposing me. All right. They would take the parsley and they would dip it in the salt water. And for Exodus, this is what it caused them to remember and to proclaim when they looked at the story of Exodus through the lens of the Passover feast. Here's the first one. For Exodus, here's what we see. It represented the hyssop that was used to put the lamb's blood on the doorpost. So they would take the, the hyssop and they would take and they would put this on the doorpost with the blood of the lamb. They would put it on the doorpost with this. It was kind of like their own little brush, their paintbrush, right? You see that, right? In the Old Testament, in Exodus, the hyssop was used to put that on the doorpost on the doorpost with the blood's lamb. In the New Testament with Jesus Christ, if we're looking from Exodus all the way to Jesus, here's what the, here's what the hyssop represents. The hyssop was used to wet the mouth of Jesus, the lamb of God, on the cross, on the wooden cross, the bloody lamb of God that was on the cross. The hyssop was used to wet his lips when he was about to speak and say his last few words. That was used at the cross. Does that make sense? You all tracking me so far? We're starting small. We're going to get big. We're going to roll with it, all right? The second one is this. Not just the parsley and the salt water. The second one is this. We have the bitter root and horseradish. A bitter root looks like something like this, okay? Bitter root. It's a... Shh, please, bud. Please, Jack. The bitter root and horseradish. Does anybody know what horseradish tastes like? Would anybody like to try horseradish for the very first time? Have you ever had it before? Oh, yeah. You brought a friend. Though. You can have one of these. I'll put a little bit on there. You tell me what you think about that. Yeah. Just get a good, you got to get a good chunk of it now. How is it? Is it good? You like that a lot? No, it's not, is it? Please, you're going to have to keep that. I'm going to tell you. I'm coming to you right here. Talk to me, Terry. Talk to me. I want an honest reaction. Okay, come on. Let's see it. Oh, it's bad. It's bad. That's what it looks like, Jono. You want to try it? Are you sure it's pretty bad? All right. That's all I got. I'm done with it. I need to show you guys this. The bitter root horseradish is so bitter. It is so strong. It's, it's a tough flavor to deal with. But here's what it represents for Exodus. They would have the bitter root, the horseradish kind of sauce. They would have that as a reminder of the bitterness of the slavery and abuse that God saved them from. Remember the hard labor they're on? Like they were under hard labor in Egypt from Pharaoh. It was bitter and harsh. It was difficult. 
And the bitter root, the horseradish was supposed to represent at the dinner table. It was to remind them of what God had saved them from in the slavery and bondage in Egypt. As I look to the New Testament, what does the bitterness and the horseradish represent? For Jesus, it's a reminder of the bitterness of sin that God saved us from. Sin is the worst, isn't it? Let's sh- listen, listen, listen. It's the worst, man. It overpromises and it underdelivers every time. It robs you of things. It jacks up relationships, like it jacks up like just your life. Like it's so like robbing. It's just horrible. And sometimes you get slaved in it. Some of you guys in this room are walking in sin every day and you feel like you're just a slave. You got this bondage, this big weight on your back and you're just walking around with it every day. And the Passover is supposed to remind you that those burdens, that slavery to sin, the bondage to follow the ways of the enemy has been broken. The Passover feast was to remind you of what God did in Exodus, but what he's still doing today in freeing you of the chains and the shame and the bondage of sin. Because it's a bitter, bitter, bitter root in all of our lives. But God has the ability to free us from it. I hope every time y'all think about horseradish, this, don't be mad at me if you like it, this sauce that I'm really not a big fan of, When you think about it, I hope you think of the nasty bitterness of sin every single time because that is what sin is like. It robs, it steals, it destroys. It is horrible, man. You're nodding your head because you you experienced it. You were walking through it, yeah. You were walking through it. She said, yeah. The next one is this. Let's go to the next one. Here we go. Let's keep rolling. The wine or the juice. Oh, we got a jokester today. Great, perfect. All right. Today we have grape juice, simple grape juice. Shh, listen. This is for me. I've been talking a bunch. I'm sore. I got a sore throat. They would actually, actually, we're going to give it to our, our number one guest today, Miss Sam. There you go. Grape juice. You like grape juice? You don't? Well, you don't have to drink if you don't want to. It's just grape juice. Is that okay? It's Welch's, so shh, listen. What they would do is they would take, they would have four cups they would do. And they would take, I hope I don't spill this, but they would take their juice and they would fill up four different cups. And the first one they would drink, shh, listen, listen, I'm not giving this out. The first they would drink would be the cup of sanctification, which just means the cleansing work of God. They'd fill up another cup, and they would drink the cup of judgment, I believe is the second one. The judgment. The third cup, they would fill it up and they would drink it again. This was the cup of redemption. When you look at, uh, I believe it's John chapter 14, or maybe I think it's 14, you'll see Jesus raises up his cup and he drinks. He drinks the first cup that we have recorded and the third cup recorded there. 
When he talks about his blood, he's talking about the cup of redemption represented his blood. We can put that on the screen as well. Jesus, his, obviously the Old Testament represents the four cups of sanctification, sanctification, judgment, redemption, and then praise. Jesus represented the blood of Jesus that was spilled at Calvary. If we were to walk through the juice, the wine, there's a lot of different options, thoughts about what this could represent, represent in the Old Testament. It could represent uh, the, the, uh, the crossing of the Red Sea. It could represent some other things that we see through there. But what I want you to see is it definitely was like these four cups they drank, but it was in the New Testament, clearly a representation of Jesus' blood. That's what he told us from the New Testament. That's what he says in the Gospels. This wasn't just a random juice encounter with the Lord. This was him walking through the Passover meal. And then we're going to go one more. We're going to go two more, actually. One more. We go to the bread. When we get to the bread, normally people think of bread like this right here. And uh, this is what we would have oftentimes. But this has got yeast in it, and it is called leaven bread. And the reason is because when you, I'm not a real good bread maker. My sister is. If she was here, she could probably do this better than me. But what you do is you let the bread sit for a while, and it will rise and then you'll cook it, right? Is that correct? I'm, not, I'm, I'm right there, right? And so obviously if we're eating, we would have a full big bread like this and we would be handing out, thank you for your help. You can have this one, that's you, okay? Here's the deal. Here's the deal. Shh. Track with me, track with me. This is closer to what unleavened bread looks like. It doesn't have any rise to it. And what's unique, y'all are like, yeah, yeah, that's what you mean, yeah. When you look at this, shh, real quick, it is unleavened, which means for the Israelites, they had unleavened bread because they left in the middle of the night. It didn't have time to rise up when they left Egypt. They left in the middle of the night, and that's why it was unleavened bread. But unleavened, leaven is compared in the Bible as sin. It's a picture for sin. So when it says unleavened, it means sinless kind of bread. That's the picture that it gives. It also says that the bread was striped, which means it's, it's scarred as it goes through, which is really random when you think about it. The fact that the bread was scarred. But then lastly, it's also pierced through. And you can see little holes on the bread, correct? Like little holes that go through it. Look on the back, y'all can see it a little bit better. Y'all track with me? So the bread was unleavened and it was striped and it was pierced. And everyone's like, what does that mean? And the Jews of the Old Testament always thought, or maybe even some Jews even today, thought it represented Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But they're like, but that doesn't make sense because when we do the matzo bread for our ceremony, the Passover, they take out the second piece of bread. They take out the second piece of bread and this is so, it's incredible. They take it and they break it in half. And they take that bread and they wrap it in a linen cloth. They take it and they wrap it in a linen cloth and they take it and they hide it in their room. Listen, sh just track with me for a second, okay? They take it and they hide it in the room. And then they ask one of the kids, after they've come back from out of the room, they ask one of the kids to go find, they ask the kids all go find the bread that was broken and wrapped and hidden. And so the kids are looking around like it's Easter egg hunting time. You know what I mean? Like they're looking for it. Because what happens is whoever finds in this beautiful, this is so cool. Whoever finds the bread and brings it back, they get a huge gift, a great gift from the family. And I tell you that because here's the deal. It sounds like a funny tradition from the Old Testament. 
But it really was a picture all the way in Exodus that was going to point all the way to the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. Look at what happens for Jesus here. Jesus' body was sinless. He was perfect. He was scarred, just like the bread was striped. And he was pierced in his side. And then after that, his body was taken, wrapped in linen cloth, and buried in a tomb. That they would one day find three days later. And they would celebrate with great joy because they found Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? The Jews didn't even know it. They had no idea. I mean, they knew about the coming Messiah, but they didn't realize how all those things were going to play out. Not just looking back at Exodus, but looking forward to the coming Messiah. Isn't that amazing? That's so cool. We can't help but celebrate that. But here's the final kicker. The last thing of all. They would finally celebrate every year with having, I don't want to pick it up, but I will. Okay, lamb. It's not actually lamb, it's roast beef. I'm sorry, I never told you. They picked up a piece of lamb and the lamb would represent, I'll put it on the screen for you. For Exodus, they would look back to Exodus, remind themselves of the lamb that was spotless, firstborn, the male lamb that would bear the judgment for the family so that when the Lord came through to strike down, he would spare their family because the judgment had already been spent on the lamb. And for Jesus, here's the good news, guys. Jesus was the lamb of God that was beaten, that was striped, that was pierced for every one of us in this room. And he was hung on a cross where he would die. The Lamb of God, the perfect Son of God, the one and only Son, the firstborn Son, just like the ones that were slaughtered in Egypt, now is being slaughtered on a cross. That one, the Lamb of God, is taking on the judgment that we all deserve so that you might be treated like a son or daughter of the Most High King. God made a way. Through the Passover, he was celebrating what he did in Exodus. But man, through the Passover, he was also celebrating what he would one day through the, do through the life of Jesus. Isn't that cool? Isn't that amazing? So now, whenever I think about grabbing that cracker or grabbing that juice on a Lord's Supper Sunday, I'm reminded this goes to the Passover. And the Passover goes to Exodus. But all of this stuff is pointing to the Jesus Christ who came to this earth, who bore our our punishment, who bore our sins so that we might walk in freedom. And here's the truth of the matter. Remember God's promise in the beginning? I will bless you. By multiplying your people, I will bless you by giving you this land and I will bless you by bringing a blessing to all nations. Y'all remember that? And that blessing is who? Jesus. We looked at the three truths for Exodus. Well, here's the three truths for you. The the three truths from the gospel. God made a promise a long time ago that he was gonna send Jesus to down the cross for all of our sins. God's promise was big, grand, and to be honest, impossible. But 
God's people were in a spot where we were desperate and in need of a savior because we were in bondage and slavery to sin. We were stuck in our junk, stuck in our mess. We couldn't solve it. We couldn't fix it. There was nothing we could do. But Jesus, being rich in his love and mercy, said, I will come and I will bless you by dying on the cross for your sins. And through God's power, not through 10 plagues, but through one lamb of God, he would provide salvation from his judgment through Jesus Christ, who died died on the cross, rose from the dead so that you might be saved. We see for you as well, God's promise, God's people, and God's power on display today. And the truth of the matter is this, for every one of you right here, you have to decide, do you believe, do you trust in Jesus Christ? You see, because for the Egyptians and for the Israelites, let me grab it. For the Egyptians, I'm almost done. I'm I'm about to wrap up right here. I'm about to be done. For the Egyptians and the Israelites, they had a decision. Were they going to be willing to slaughter a lamb and put it on the doorpost like the weirdos in the town? Were they going to do that? Like that sounds so random and out of place. Are they going to do that? The Egyptians did not. They rebelled. They didn't believe God. But the Israelites, each one of them, slaughtered a lamb dipped their hyssop into the blood's lamb and they chose to put it on the doorpost of their home. And when they did, God spared them when his judgment came because they believed and they trusted in the sacrifice of the lamb. Today, I ask every one of you, the real lamb of God has come and died once for all, for all to be saved for all to be redeemed from the house of slavery and the house of bondage, to walk into the land of Canaan, the rich land that the Lord has promised. All he's asking from you is this, is to believe and to trust in the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ.